Well, so glad you're here. If you weren't here, nobody would be here. That's about as profound as it's going to get today. Most likely. So, walking out of the basketball game Tuesday night, in which uh, some great things occurred because Baker City, in the four games I watched, two JV games and the two varsity games, Pendleton paid the price for coming into our fair city. And it was awesome. Pendleton, big old town, come to Little Baker City and left limping. And I was kind of happy about that. And I always try to get gone just a little bit early, beat the crowd out to the vehicles. You don't have to wait too long. So we had the game pretty firmly in hand, and I was headed out, packed up my little seat, sitting with Bruce and Kelly and a couple other folks at the ball game. It was a great time. And uh, I'm striding out across the old parking lot in the dark like I had no better sense and hit a little patch of water which had frozen. They call that ice. And didn't see it coming. About halfway across the parking lot. And I don't know how, how high my feet must have gotten, but I landed on top of my head. And this left side is one big bruised bunch of ribs. I thought for a second I may have broken my back. I could not move. And you know, <clears throat> my wife, she can uh, come home and I can notice that she's got maybe a great big bruise on her leg and she can't even remember, well, I can't even remember how that happened. I can take a fall like that and it doesn't show at all. And nobody believes you. And nobody was there to watch it. As I'm laying there in the roadway, a young uh, policeman turned, you know, the guy that I think he was sitting in the ball game. I had just walked past him a little bit ago. And he's in his car, and he's coming down, and I'm laying there holding up my hand going, don't run over me, don't run over me, because I can't move. <laughs> and you go through the mental checkoff, all the kids in here are going, you big wussy. I can see it in your face right now. It's like, geez, that happens every day to me. No big deal. Well, when you're 66, it's a big deal, let me tell you. And, uh, and he got out, and he came over and helped me. Great young man. Kind of took me through the old concussion protocol. Asked me questions like my name and my birthday and, you know, where was I at? And, you know, well, I'm in Baker City. Well, what are you doing here? Well, I'm at a basketball game. So I got through all of that, had this big knot on my head. And, you know, the reason I'm really telling you all this is because if nobody's there to see it, nobody cares. You know? And I needed to have somebody care. So I'm telling you all about the details of that. So this week has, has been kind of a job just... Oh, if you've ever hurt your ribs, this is about the maybe fifth or sixth time in my life I've damaged the old ribs enough that it's hard to breathe and all that. Uh, it's just been, you can't sleep, forget that, you know, because the second you twitch in your sleep, you wake up with a muscle spasm in your ribs or something, and 
I got some medicine for some of that. It doesn't seem to help or the who, but anyway. Um, so do you feel sorry for me at all? I, I appreciate it. So Bruce and Kelly, we were having a great time at the ball game. You didn't even know this, did you? I walked outside and nearly died. <laughs> it was horrible. So I just needed somebody to care about it. My wife was busy getting ready to go to Honduras, where she is now, so she didn't really care. She had too much to think about and too much to do, so. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> My daughter, Blair, yeah, she called in or texted in two or three times. I got by the store one, one day, but I'm sure I was no fun to talk to. I groaned and moaned every time I tried to stand up. But I, I will say yesterday there was some improvement. And, oh, I could, I could sense it. And then this morning I'm well on the way. So there's a couple things I'll, if I wince or anything, that's what's going on. It's, it's not a touch of the Holy Spirit or anything. It's just, I think I'm past the need for prayer. So... Anyway, well, the Christian community, following what we have come to know as Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the Christian community was suddenly thrust into reality. And we got to face reality once in a while, don't we? The truths and principles from God's Word need to be applied to our lives, to our ministry, and they are invaluable. But Luke wrote the book of Acts. He did a masterful job of telling us what's going on. And he told us what led up to Pentecost. Go to the upper room, stay there until the Holy Spirit comes. And we kind of want to stay there. We want to talk about the second chapter of the book of Acts. There used to be a group called the second chapter of Acts. If you're my age or a little older, maybe, you probably know about them. Annie Herring and her group, they were amazing. But then it goes on, and we can't just stay in that moment. So after chapter 1 and then chapter 2, there's a chapter 3. And chapter 3 has come into our lives all the time. But I want to take you to the book of Acts, and we're going to read a little bit. So if you have a Bible, you'd probably like to follow along. And if you don't have one, there should be one in the pew there in front of you, usually. I uh, don't see anybody fighting over that right now, so that's okay. But We're going to start with the first verse of chapter 3. And we're going to kind of set the stage right there. We're going to let God's Word set the stage for what we come up with today. So one day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, three in the afternoon. Now a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every single day. Somebody picked him up and set him there to beg all day for alms, and then they picked him up at night, took him home, brought him back the next day. 
When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John, and Peter said, Hey, look at us. So the man gave him his attention, expecting to get something from them. Can you imagine living that, that way? You know, I, uh, I'm not the best guy with folks who are begging on the street corners. You know what I'm saying? I, uh, sometimes I've, I've helped them, and uh, I've, I've seen people drop off sacks of McDonald's food for folks at the corner and seen them walk right over to the trash can and throw it away as soon as the people were out of sight. That, so, you know, you, you shouldn't have that be an excuse for everything that goes on. But you, I, I, don't, I don't have a ton of sympathy built into me about those things. That's a fault of mine. But this day, this man has probably had tons of rejection. I have no idea what the, uh, what the percentage is of being a beggar as to how often people help you. But if you just, every day, your friends put you there, every day you beg all day long for something, food or money or whatever it is to keep yourself alive, and you get up and you go home. Next day they bring you back. Same thing all over again. Five, seven days a week. But Peter said, look at me. Probably... He hadn't heard that one for a while. Look at us. And all of a sudden his attention was focused upon Peter and John. And he thought, hey, here's a hit. Somebody's going to give me something. But Peter said, silver or gold, I do not have. But what I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Get up and walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. And then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. And when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as that same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate, called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had just happened to him. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished. They just kept running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? Now remember, they had just come out of the upper room. Pentecost had just happened. The tongues of fire and, and uh, the wind, the mighty rushing wind, all of that had just taken place. And these guys were filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter and John. Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by your own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, and you handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one, and you asked that a murderer be released to you instead. You killed the author of life 
but God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see right here was and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to this man, as you can all see. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all of the prophets, saying that, his, that this Christ would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said this, The Lord your God will raise you up, raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his own people. Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, as many as have spoken, have foretold these days, and you were heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. And he said to Abraham, Through your offspring all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you, and to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Father, may your word speak to our hearts in such a way that we cannot escape the fact that we each one need to respond to your Holy Spirit's leadership. When you ask a question, may we answer honestly. And may we move toward you, if the need is there, to grow this day and become more like you. Would you cause that to happen in our hearts and lives? May we be open and honest and willing to grow because of you. Amen. Well, Pretty notable miracle took place here, didn't it? Pretty amazing. So let's talk about the circumstances of the miracle. The circumstances that surround this miracle were the crossing or the intersection of two habits. The one was the habit of Peter and John going into the temple. They did it all the time. Pretty common thing for the Jews to enter the temple to pray. And the other was the habit of the lame man being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful so that he could beg. His begging was a reiterated appeal that he had chanted there for years and years. I have no idea how, long, how old this man was. But this is something that happened every day, all the time. So let's take a look at the characteristics of the miracle. The miracle was unexpected. People were just doing what they normally do. They were just coming to the temple to pray. Even, the, even the, the beggar was just coming to do his begging thing. One more day, one more time. Following in the normal old way, we just do stuff. How often do we get up on a Sunday morning and we come to church because it's what we do? What if he showed up here on some day and uh, there was a beggar at the front door? That'd be a little out of ordinary maybe for us, wouldn't it? Somebody just sitting there begging to get through the day. 
so they could live, so they could eat. That'd be unusual. That would break the habit pattern just a little bit. But here we have a crossing of two habits. The miracle was unexpected. It, it was alms for which the man was begging. It was the healing that he received. He did not get what he thought he would get. He'd have been satisfied with the $5 bill. He'd have been satisfied with a cup of coffee and a donut, probably. Not something, but what he received was the ability to walk. He had never walked. The miracle was in the name of Jesus. A name stands for all that the person is. Therefore, the name of Christ includes all the power of Christ. The miracle was instantaneous in verse 7. Be walking is the tense used by Luke to express enduring action. He is to walk now. He's to walk always without leaning, without mending, without learning any more about it. Peter walks over to him. He says, look at me. He looks up. Peter takes his hand. He says, get up and walk. That man's life changed. I got to wonder a little bit. If your habit has been to just give in to your circumstances and say, this is where I've always been, this is where I will always be. I'm always going to be like this. I'm always going to have this infirmity. I'm going to just, to the point where somebody walks up and says something to you, and you follow it up as an act of faith, and your whole life is changed. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Think about that for a second. It's enduring. It's now, and it's for always. It isn't like you get to walk. Well, we're going to give you five minutes to walk and know what it feels like, and then you can go back to sitting and not walk anymore. That's kind of ridiculous. That's not the way God works. So let's see what the consequences of the miracle were. Well, this guy was filled with joy, verse 8. He praised God, and he started leaping about. He was so excited. I, I don't know what that looked like. I hesitate to try to do it, especially the way my ribs are feeling right now. I might be so somewhat inclined. I look around, and there's a few of you. Beth comes to mind that she could probably give us a little example of that. She does it every Saturday at Upwards. She's just kind of the entertainer of the event. So he was filled with joy, and he leaped about and jumped about, and he was excited for the world to see. His life had been completely changed. There was a testimony here in verse 9 to all the people who were watching. They had seen this guy for years, walked right past him. Maybe every once in a while at Christmas or or. A, or well, not Christmas yet, probably, but anyway, walking around, things would come up, and they'd feel a little more uh, gracious, and they'd offer him a little bit of something along the way, and, and uh, they'd seen this guy for years. He was just sitting there every day, count on it like clockwork, sitting there begging, looking for somebody to give him a handout so he could make it through one more day, one more week, one more month. One more year with no plans except to go one more day, one more week, one more month, 
and one more year. But he was a testimony to the people, and they'd seen him there. And now he was walking around and leaping around, and, and a crowd quickly gathered. Well, a message got proclaimed that day, did it not? The fallout of this miracle had a far-sweeping impact. First out of Christ's love, this man was healed. Christ loved him. Christ wasn't there in person this time. Christ had been crucified, resurrected, and been taken to heaven. But these guys have been to Pentecost, you know. And I, I, I don't know about you, but sometimes I get this idea of Peter and the disciples. But I, I've got this idea of Peter as being out there and he's a fisherman doing his thing, doing his habit every day. Gets up, gathers up his nets, gets out the boat, heads out to go do his job. Got to feed my family, got to take care of things, got to go catch a bunch of fish. So every day, it's what he does all day long. Along comes Jesus and says, hey, you want to do something really great? I'll make you fishers of men. What did, you, what did Peter do? And I got this idea that Peter was a big burly guy. You ever think of him like that? Just a big burly guy. Big muscles and kind of a broad back and probably got a pretty good beard on him, you know. Looked like Paul Bunyan with a fishnet instead of an axe and a blue ox, you know, just a, just a big old guy, big, strong dude. And he took off and he dropped his nets. That represents a whole lot right there, doesn't it? What, is those, what do those nets represent for him? His whole life. He dropped them and followed Jesus in a moment's notice. So I've got this idea about pre- Pentecost Apostle Peter. And I think of him as somebody that was kind of always getting in trouble. He's kind of rough and rambunctious and liable to say the wrong thing at the right time and the right thing at the wrong time and all of that. He's always kind of stumbling around, it seems like, getting things in trouble. But Christ loved him so much. And he told him, you're the rock upon which I will build my church. Then Pentecost came. Now, on this side of Pentecost, it's kind of like I see Peter going into this transformation booth. And when he comes out of Pentecost, he's this smooth-haired, kind of a glow about him, a nice robe, kind of stands up sort of stately and holds his hands like this and gives out wise advice. I don't know. Do you, do you see it that way? I, I know it can't be like that necessarily. Peter was Peter. But there's the one before Pentecost, and then there's the one after Pentecost. He was a different guy. And I got to tell you, when I look at you and I see you, and I see you come to Christ, and maybe even just before that, and I see... The roughness in you, I'm talking about you, but I, I, I could talk about me, but that gets boring. I just fall down in parking lots and stuff and, you know, hurt my ribs and things. You guys got that down pat yet? Okay. Feel bad for me? 
And, but I watch people all the time begin to grow in Christ. And when the Holy Spirit enters your life, when you come out on the other side of that, you're a different person. You're different. You may not always see that. You may not always think that. But the rest of the body, as we view your life, we see you change. We see you become more like him. Well, first, out of Christ's love, the man was healed. And second, Peter alerted everyone that the work begun by Jesus of Nazareth was continuing through his disciples now, in whom he was abiding. And his ministry was characterized by miracles. And now, one actually happens through the disciples. Once again, Christ had Jerusalem's attention. He just wouldn't go away, would he? The disciples had become wind tunnels for the outpoured spirit of Pentecost. And thirdly, the disciples now knew that his promises were true. And now we're becoming reality in his disciples. Well, as on the day of Pentecost, Peter again uses a current event on this healed man as an object lesson to introduce his message to the people. <clears throat> he denies that it was this man's doing by using the two qualities that were the greatest source of pride among the Jews, moral impeccability and religious diligence. Could either of these things heal this man? No. It was developed by designating the Lord in four ways. First of all, in verse 13, he was a servant. And this identified Jesus as the servant Messiah of the Old Testament. Jesus always referred to himself as a servant. He was delivered up. He was a servant, and he was Jesus. And this linked him as the man of Nazareth. He was and the holy and just one, this asserted his equality with God and affirmed his deity. You want to know the difference between us and other faiths? I'm talking about Christianity, not Nazarendom. I was asked not long ago by someone who was a Mormon and uh, had said to me, he said, why is it that the Christian church holds us off. Why don't we feel accepted by the general Christian public? And, you know, I was pretty sure I was going to have to answer that someday to somebody along the way. And I did it like this. Well, some would say, not that I, you know, but it came down to the one that I thought was going to be the killer. And I said, some would say that in the Mormon world, Christ was created by God and that he is not God. But in the Christian church, he's deity. He's part of the triune Godhead. And he came out of his chair it was crazy. We'd been pretty calm till right there. But that was the key note. So, if you want to know sometimes about these things, 
Always remember, Christ is deity. He is God. He is not, a, not created by God. The Father didn't create him. I don't understand it. Don't get me wrong. I don't have this all nailed down, what the conversations are in heaven over coffee and donuts about this stuff. I don't know if they even have coffee and donuts. I don't know. I doubt it. But Christ was deity. He's the holy and just one. And this asserted his equality with God and affirmed that he was God. He was prince of life. This means literally the author or leader of life. So the message here, we see the difference in Peter before Pentecost. We see it after Pentecost. Christ is exalted. He's delivered up by the people. This is stuff that, that Peter's telling them in this, this uh, impromptu sermon that he suddenly begins to preach. Just on the heels of healing the beggar. He was falsely accused. He was killed. He was poured out as a drink offering. He didn't, his life yet wasn't taken from him. According to scripture, he gave it willingly. And God raised him from the dead. He was raised in glory. And Peter then drew them all together and answered the original question. How was the lame man healed? Well, it's through faith. In his name, the name of Jesus. You know, right about here, I've got this, these words floating into my head. Uh, C.S. Lewis, didn't he write the Chronicles of Narnia? Is that true? I got the right author with the right thing. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Aslan is talking to the kids who were the royal kids all through the Chronicles. And it's been a while since I've read them, so I, I can't remember all their names. But uh, he said, there's a deeper magic inside this whole thing. You know, and when we say words like that, it catches our attention, doesn't it? Because, well, magic. Magic and Christ, they don't go together, do they? So when I heard that come out, I thought to myself, I don't know how to explain everything about this aspect of what goes on in heaven and what has happened in the supernatural. I don't know it all. Someday I hope I will. But to understand that there's a deeper magic that goes on than what we may always be capable of seeing helps me to understand that there's a supernatural God who has a desire to make a change in my life in a way that is a deeper magic than I can understand. I don't understand it. I've never talked to anybody that had it totally figured out. I've read some pretty important guys. Kevin and I are in a group called the, the Tozer Gang, and we, and, and Brother Jens Paul and a few others, and we... We, uh, we read A.W. Tozer. Tozer is one of the greatest theologians that are straight on biblical. They don't do philosophical things. They're not into isms and all of that. They just, he just talks about the Word of God. And I don't think he could even answer that stuff. 
Wow. Well, one thing that Peter was pretty good about said there's some things that need to happen. Is there needs to be repentance if you want to be saved. And they were asked to change their minds about Jesus and asked to change their way of life. These are Jews. Peter's talking to the Jews. And he's going, you know what? This is going to call on you to leave some things behind that you thought you had figured out. You've got the law, you've got this, you've got that, you've got all these traditions and all these things that you do, but you just do them, and then you just go on your way. You come, you make your sacrifices, you go right back to sinning again, and you've got to come back next year and take another sacrifice and get it all done. I'm going to challenge you, he's telling them, you don't need to live that way. You can live for God all out, 100% in the kingdom of God. Let me ask you today, have you experienced God's forgiveness through his son, Jesus Christ? Let's just stop right in the middle of it all and quit listening to the preacher talk and just ask ourselves, do I know what he's talking about? Do I know what the word is saying to me? Do I sense that God wants me to experience his forgiveness and my repentance? Refreshing would follow. And this is the comparison of the heat and the sweat and the slavery of legalism to the pleasant breezes of God's grace. When I am his. And that's good enough. And he is mine. And suddenly it's all about him and all that's good. So we might ask ourselves the question, what am I willing to let Jesus do in my life? Can you ask yourself that question? And I might even rephrase it conversely. What am I not willing to let him do in my life? Well, brothers and sisters, the early church of Jesus Christ was born out of the whirlwind of a Holy Ghost revival, such as the world has never, ever seen. It was called Pentecost. I wished I'd been there. I'm going to tell you, there was a, I went to a promise keeper it was for all the clergy-type people, and we wound up in Atlanta, Georgia, at the Georgia Dome. This was like 90, 1998, 1999, right in there. Probably 98. 40-some thousand preacher types in one place. And we were there for five days, listening to some of the greatest preachers I've ever been around. The last evening, we'd had a time of singing and celebration, and the guy that was the worship leader, he wasn't, that wasn't his job. It was, he was just a preacher from some church who was used of God. And he said, at the, time, at the end of our time together tonight, I want us to not say a word. 44,000 preachers? 
in the same room, keeping their mouths shut? I don't know about that. That's what I was thinking. That would be the miracle, greater than this guy getting healed at the gate. <laughs> he could keep these guys quiet. When the, when the time together, this was our last service together, it was incredible. What a, every time we got together was just amazing. And 44,000 men sitting in prayer silently. And I'm not kidding you. I'm ready for Pentecost to happen. It, the hair on the back of my neck was standing up. I was, I was sensitized. And all of a sudden, there came a wind through that arena. And I still remember a program, you know, that we got when we came in, blowing around all over the place, went over here, went over there. This wind was pushing it. And all of a sudden, the wind started picking up, and I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, where's the tongues of fire? Here it comes. Man, we are going to get it now. This is, this is the greatest thing, this gathering of God's men. We're about to experience Pentecost too. Well, the fire didn't happen quite like that. But I know the Holy Spirit was there. Well, for much the same reasons and with the same results, so was the church, the Pentecostal church of the Nazarene born as well. Regrettably, we dropped the Pentecostal part of our title early on due to primarily any association with those that were seeking signs and wonders, thrills and manifestation things and that you know you can you can carry this stuff that where you're not worshiping the lord you're worshiping other things looking for a thrill sadly in the process i sometimes fear we have allowed the holy fire of the holy spirit to dissipate as well Friends, Reverend Jim Thorpe, if you remember him being here, his words still ring in my ears probably 25 years ago now. And it's funny how you can hear a man preach some words and you'll remember it. And things my wife said to me 10 minutes ago, I don't remember them at all. But here's what he said. Never be afraid of the Holy Spirit. That speaks volumes. You ever been afraid of the Holy Spirit? Right away you'd say, well, no. That's pretty dumb. Be afraid of the Holy Spirit and admit it right out like that? You can't. Well, if that's what your response was, let me ask you. When was the last time God said to you, and the Holy Spirit carried it to your ears and to your heart and said, I want you to come closer right now. I want to speak to you up close right now. And we're going to point this thing out in your life and in your heart, and I want you to bring that to me, and I want you to repent of that right now.
and you poo-pooed it. You put it off. And you thought, all I got to do is get out of this church service, get out the door, I'll go have dinner somewhere, I'll go watch a football game, and all that will get put behind me, at least for another week. And I won't have to respond to the Holy Spirit. If you've ever anything like that, you have quenched the Holy Spirit as he spoke to you. I grew up in a church, there wasn't much quenching going on. The preacher preached it like God was telling him to preach it. People would stand and testify about the holy fire in their lives and the cleansing and the infilling that God was doing in their lives. And our altars used to be lined and nobody ever said, get down here. It just happened. I'm going to tell you something that will really blow your mind. I saw a 10-year-old girl, and I'd known her her whole life, who was born with a bad degenerative hip, deformed hip. Sunday night service, people were just going down for the prayer time. It wasn't the big, big sermon. I don't think the sermon even, maybe we didn't even get to the sermon that night. I can't remember now. And her mother went down to pray. And about 30 seconds later, this little girl, they were friends of our family, followed her mama down to the altar and just knelt down and prayed right beside her mom. And you're thinking, that's, I love to see that. What a pattern she's setting. All of a sudden, that little girl stood up screaming, I'm healed. I'm healed. And she was walking normal. She had never done that. Not ever. She was born this way. Now, I'm not saying that's the kind of thing you go for. That's the wrong way to approach this stuff. What I am saying is, what did Peter say to the blind, to the, to the crippled beggar? He said, look at me. And he took him by the hand and he said, get up and walk. I have never seen it again. I just saw it once. But I tell you what, there was a church of people that faith was incredibly fortified by that moment. And there's a little girl who still to this day fully trusts in Christ. The old hymn that has long been a statement in the church, there's power in the blood, could easily become a question. Is there power in the blood? You see, when it's of God, it feels good, it looks right, and it's okay. Well, back at that preacher convention I was telling you about, I've used this as an illustration before. I, about, what, probably less than a month ago, Dr. Dr. Jack Hayford if you know who Dr. Jack Hayford was, the four-square pastor who achieved incredible status. Why? Because he was an incredible man of God and a pastor who preached straight from Scripture, and God spoke through him. 
So Dr. Jack Hayford was one of the guest preachers. Anyway, Dr. Jack passed away here probably within the last two, three weeks. Van Nuys, California, Church on the Way. Great, incredible man. I, uh, you know, I don't care what denomination you represent. If you're preaching God's Word, I'm all about it. He taught me many, many things. I have books on my shelf that I hold dear that he wrote. At this conference, this Promise Keepers conference, he shared. And uh, I don't remember everything he said, but I do remember the theme, which was to surrender all that I am to the King of Kings. And he told about this instance in his life, which was a major turning point for him. He's in his study, getting ready for Sunday's sermon. And he was on his knees with his face in his chair, just praying that God would show him what Scripture, uh, what a Scripture needed to say, how to present it well, and just kind of laying out the normal thing that he would do on a typical day of preparation to preach on Sunday. And he said, all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit said to me, get up and dance. And he said, at first I just ignored it and went right on preaching. I was sure it wasn't anything of God because I was a good four-square boy. And back in the day, all of us of that time period, whether we were four-square or, or Assembly of God or Nazarene or what we were, top of the list, don't dance. You go to hell. Straight ticket to hell. Go to movies. Go to dances. <laughs> and so he argued with God. God said, I want you to get up and dance for me. But God, I was, I'm, I'm a good four-square boy. I was raised in the church. I don't do the wrong things. I always did what I'm supposed to do. The church says don't dance. I don't dance. I don't know how to dance. He couldn't get away from it. The Holy Spirit kept bringing it. I want you, Jack Hayford, to dance for me. Now, at the outset, some of you teenagers might be going, no problem. You know what I mean? I, I do TikTok all the time. I'll, I'll get up and dance for the Lord. No big deal. But for Jack Hayford, that was big. So he said, I got up off of my knees, and he, I still remember him saying, guys, it wasn't pretty. And he said, I could not figure out why God wanted me to do this so bad. So he said, I just stood there, held my hands up. I started moving my feet. He said, it wasn't pretty. I know no moves. But all of a sudden, my tears began to flow. My heart was broken before God. God didn't want to see Jack Hayford's fancy dance moves. He wanted to know if he had his heart. You see, having a high view of God and a low view of myself equals a correct understanding of who our holy God is. However, a high view of myself and a lowered view of God is an incorrect understanding 
of who God is. My lowered views of God cannot help but affect my view of Christ. We cannot have a healthy view of sin and what Christ has done to set us free from sin if we have a high view of me and a low view of him. That means we have a low view of our sin. It's no big deal. Ah, I do that thing. I know it probably breaks God's heart and all that, but it's just not that big a deal. Compared to other things I've done or seen other people do, that sin's not then. What you're doing, you're raising yourself and you're lowering God. A higher view of self and a lowered view of God will keep us ineffective for God's purposes and cause us to be powerless Christians. Revival calls us to be overcomers. Overcomers inherit eternal life. That's the only way. God longs to set us free from the clutches and bondage of sin, but if we keep ourselves in the high position, Christ can never be Lord of our lives. Now, please, don't mess this up. Because all of heaven bows at the throne of Christ. All of heaven. The church's singular problem is that we have not kept up the drumbeat of keeping Christ at the center. We have lost our amazement with Christ and replaced our reason for existence with methodologies and isms and philosophies and how we can get more people. How can we get more people in church? How can we be more attractive to the world? We've become easily distracted with numbers in the pews and bucks in the plate. And we can so easily measure our success in the church by how many and how much we have if we're not really, really careful. If it were all about money, the churches in North America would be filled with lovers of Christ. But truthfully, the North American church has 80% of the money. We're rich. But 80% of the Christians live outside. Of North America. How many of you have been to a third world country? Maybe you've been on a work and witness trip and you've been someplace and you've seen some of the happiest people on the planet and they got they got nothing. They got nothing. The church in North America has lost its way, but the blueprint print for revival is clear. And Malachi tells us to return to me, I will return to you. Christ and Christ alone must become more than words. My druthers must go away, must become subject to him, earnest praying, earnest study of his word, honestly pursuing Christ, joyfully sharing our testimony. All are all that can save the church. Somewhere along the line, the church has become all about us kind of me-centered. We need to once again become all about Christ and be Christ-centered. Great song, In Christ Alone. I place my trust. 
One of Satan's greatest tricks is to make a believer think that sanctified holiness is all about what we don't do. That's called legalism. That's nothing to do with being a Christian. In reality, it's all about what will I let God do with me, in me, and through me, and in my church. That's true freedom. You see, only the Holy Spirit can make a church. Father, seems like we never really know what kind of hearts and what kind of ears the things that are burning in our hearts and coming from our lips are really reaching. Maybe this wasn't meant for anybody here today. Maybe it was meant for one. Maybe there's a person in here today who has never heard the words that they need to have a personal one-on-one -on -one relationship with Jesus Christ that comes from confessing my sin and allowing him to take it from me and walking with him obediently with a belief in my heart that he was born of a virgin, that he died on a cross for my sin, and that he rose again from the dead and lives forever so that I might also live. But to believe that, Lord, means we have to leave some old habits behind. We've got to stand up. We've got to take the hand of Jesus and walk. So, Lord, as we are here in this place today, I pray that as we have this time of communion together, Lord, that if you need to speak to my heart, I would be ready to hear it. If you need to talk to anyone else's heart and draw them up close and let them see who you really are, that this is real stuff. This is deep, deep magic that goes beyond theology, goes beyond our ability to totally understand, but that the simple, basic idea of the gospel is not that hard to grasp and it's offered to us freely from the one who loves us most in your name we pray amen